I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to Romans chapter 1, to verses 24 and 25. For those who are visiting this morning, you may not know the culture of our church that we read and study through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse, and that is because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that the Lord has ordained its order as well as its substance, and so we take it up after the fashion in which we have received it. And we're in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This has been called his missionary letter. Much of that has to do with what Paul requests, that he would like to come to them so that they might then send him on his way as a missionary to those who have not heard of the wonders of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 1, we are in a section of this letter to the church in Rome where the Apostle Paul expresses the doctrine of the sin of the heart of man. It is, in a way, the bad news that comes before the good news. And so, as we study this, uh, please do know that we are securely in the beginning portion of this section on sin that goes from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And so, we're picking up sort of in the middle of one of the thoughts of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, hear the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped And served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We ask that as we study them, you would teach us that which we don't know. O Lord, that you would make us into those people who we ought to be. And that, Lord, you would give us strength where we are weak. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The famous answer of the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I love to summarize that by saying this. This means that we were made to worship God. You see, there is the question that hangs over all people, and that is, what is it or what is the result of our not worshiping God? What happens when we don't give to him the glory and the honor that is due his name when we don't give thanks to him? And here in the verses that we've just read, these two verses, Paul begins to explain the effect of our knowing God, yet not honoring or giving thanks to him. The three things I want us to see from the passage are these. In verse 24, 
the result of not worshiping God. Verse 25, the exchange of truth for lies. And also in verse 25, the eternal blessedness of God. The result of not worshiping God, verse 24, the exchange of truth for lies. Verse 25, the eternal blessedness of God. Verse 25. Beginning in verse 18, the apostle describes what is the central problem of mankind. And people have asked the question, what is that central problem? And they've answered it in a number of different ways. Some people have said that we have just simply forgotten ourselves. That's the central problem of mankind. We've forgotten who we were meant to be. We have forgotten who we actually are in our essential selves. And even some people would argue that we have forgotten that we are indeed divine. Now that's a strange sort of heresy, but that's what some people have said. Others have said that the problem is not that we have forgotten God, but that we have forgotten one another. That we are creatures that have forgotten to live in compassionate relationships, interacting with one another on the grounds of moral good. Other people have answered the question, and they have said simply, well, the central issue is that we've not known God. We've not known God. He's been a stranger to us. We've been strangers to him. It's as if the central issue is man's ignorance. But the Apostle Paul confronts that, doesn't he, in this passage of Scripture? It can't be that man doesn't know God. After all, the Apostle Paul says what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. You see, the issue is not that the people that are the creatures of God don't know him, but rather that they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And Paul says in verse 20 that the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, are clearly perceived in the things that are made. It's not that man is ignorant. Not at all. No, there is a much deeper issue. It's not that he's ignorant. It's not that he doesn't know God or that God doesn't know him. But rather, man's central problem is a worship problem. Man has known God. Paul says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. These two constituent parts of worship, the honoring, the praising of God and the thankfulness of his creatures for all that he has done and given to them. Man's central problem is a worship problem. It's not that he doesn't know who to worship, but that he refuses to worship his God. As a minister, from my vantage point, every Lord's Day, and from anyone who stands in a pulpit, we look out and we see lots of smiling faces. Everyone's well-dressed. And it just seems to be the case that people sort of have their places that they like to sit. Nothing wrong with that, so long as there's plenty of places to sit in a sanctuary. And sometimes we scan the church, we say, all right, who's all here? And I see the faces where they're supposed to be. Today, it seems like everybody's kind of sitting everywhere, so 
you guys decided to reorganize the sanctuary a bit. But sometimes there are open seats. There are open pews. And whenever people are confronted about why they aren't in the worship of God, you get a lot of answers. You see, if you're in our church, if you're a regular visitor, if you're a member, if I know who you are and I recognize that you're not here, you may have gotten one of those Sunday afternoon text messages. I'm not saying, hey, where are you? How dare you not attend? I'm genuinely asking, are you okay? After all, we do have what has been called a world pandemic. I'm always concerned for you. But in times past, and in other churches, not so much this church thus far, looking and seeing where people aren't, people who aren't in church, people who have been members, or maybe they've been regular attenders, the phone call has gone out, it's not been answered, an email has gone, it's not been returned, a visit, knock, knock, knock on the door. Where are you? We miss you. We notice you're not in the worship of God. You've not been to the church. Well, sometimes the people will just look you in the face and give you a really honest answer. Well, pastor, there's just ten things I don't like about you. That's more common than you would imagine, or maybe you would imagine it. I don't know. Ten things I don't like about you, pastor. The way you dress, the way you stand, the way you talk. That goofy southern accent you have. Your haircut, your nose, whatever. I don't like how you act. I don't like who you are. Or maybe, and this is somewhat common, Pastor, I'll tell you why I don't come to worship. I don't like those people. I don't like those people in the pew. The reason I don't come to church, the reason I don't worship God, is because of all those people I've got to be around. You know, they're not friendly. You know, they dress in a way that makes me uncomfortable. You know, they're not like me. They don't speak my language. They don't come from where I come from. I don't like those people. It's really not an issue with me. It's an issue with them. They're why I don't worship the Lord. Pastor, you're the reason I don't worship the Lord. Or sometimes you get this answer. Where you been? Well, you see, Pastor, I've been thinking about it. And there are just some things that your church believes that I just can't deal with. The reason why I don't worship God is the doctrine of your church. There's something wrong with it. The way in which you open the Bible, read the Bible, preach the Bible, teach the Bible. However it is, there's something deficient in the doctrine of the church. Why aren't people in seats, in pews, worshiping the Lord? The answer is usually it's about you, it's about them, it's about that. But the real answer, in my humble opinion, is far more disturbing And usually a whole lot more simple. If the person were to answer in honesty, and how do I know this sort of thing? It's because I examine my own heart. The answer might be like this. Pastor, I'm not in church. I'm not worshiping the Lord because I'd rather just sleep in and enjoy my own comfort rather than to give the Lord what is due his name. Maybe the answer, if it was really honest, is I'd rather spend time for myself On my hobbies, on my exercise, making my garden just perfect. Instead of just going and wasting an hour, two hours, three hours with those people I don't even like with that pastor who's just kind of a fool. I'd rather do what I want 
That's a lot more simple, isn't it, really? I just want to do my thing. Maybe, maybe, if the answer's really honest, it would sound like this. I don't want to hear the sermons. I don't want to hear the word read. It confronts me. And frankly, Pastor, I don't want anybody confronting me. Firstly, it's awkward. Secondly, it's offensive. And I don't like it. We live in a world of tolerance. Nobody ever tells me I did anything wrong. I think I'm perfect, especially when I look in the mirror. I think everything's going pretty well. I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Didn't shoot anybody this week. This week. But really at the heart of it, there's an even more simple and more disturbing answer. And the Apostle Paul tells us it's essentially this. I don't love and will not honor or give thanks to God. That's essentially at the bottom of it all. Whether you're saying it's somebody else's problem or you want your own thing or you want to deal with yourself, it's all simply saying God is not worthy of my love. I'm not going to honor him. I'm not going to give him time. I'm not going to give him my effort, my affections, my praise, my words, my thoughts, my money, nothing. It's about me. It's about what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. My world, my life, my time, my heart, me, 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 not him. And here in these verses, verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul explains to us what is the result of that. What does that produce? Look at verse 24 with me. Therefore... Or maybe we could say it because of not worshiping God. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That phrase ought to cause you to just stop. These are sober. This is a terrifying phrase. Because men and women and children would not honor God or give thanks to him. God gave them up to the desires of their hearts, to impurity. To put it in a different phrase, God said if you want sin, if you want to do that, if you, if you want to indulge yourself in the things that delight your heart rather than Praising God so that he might be delighted. Fine. You do what you want to do. He gave them up. Maybe I can put it into contemporary terms. The person who doesn't worship God and refuses to do so is sinning. And God will simply say, that's fine. Sin in the way you want to sin. And experience the weight and the terrible effect of that sin in your life. Now, this is the language of judgment. The giving up of God. We have it three times 
in chapter 1 of Romans. You have it here in verse 24. It is again in verse 26. And again in verse 28. It's the same phrase. But you may also recognize this, at least in the English translation, to a different portion of the New Testament. It's the same phrase. Maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus was given up into the hands of wicked men. He was given into the hands of the Roman soldiers. Abandoned to what? To the destruction of his body on the cross. To the mocking, to the torment, to the pain, to the anguish that was the result of the sin of the hearts of mankind. It's the same phrase. This is the language of judgment. God looks at a man, looks at a woman who simply says, I will not worship God. And God says, okay. Do what delights your heart, but simply know that it's going to have a terrible effect on you. It's going to wreak havoc in the family, in the mind, in the heart. Okay, I give you up into the sin that you want to indulge in. It's hard. It's bad news. It's the Lord withdrawing His restraining grace And something that needs to be said regarding this, whenever the Lord simply says, okay, you do what you will, some people will say, well, okay, that sounds all right. I I like to sin, I want to sin, I want to do those things, I I want to pursue my own ends. And it's because we in ourselves have bought the lie that if we sin, no matter what the world says, no matter what the word of God says, what Jesus says... As long as I like it, it's good for me. We bought the lie that that sin is going to bless us. Almost as if it's a blessing of our own design. How often is adultery a blessing? How often is violence a blessing? Abortion a blessing? Lying a blessing? A blessing. How often does it cause you and your family to flourish, your community to grow, the well-being of humans in general to be a thing spread abroad? Almost never. I think I can actually just say never, ever, ever. Sin doesn't bless people. It tears them down. And so whenever God gives them over into these things and to... A life lived not after him, not engaged in the worship of him, hearing the word of God preached and read, which is a restraining grace. It's it's terrifying. But I think this passage has a lot to do with the world in which we live. Whenever you come out of this service... Uh, Go around and look. You'll see steeples. You'll see church buildings. Beautiful ones everywhere. Go visit one. What's in there? It's pristine. It's historic. It's empty. You may smell some candle, smoke, whatever. You may see a display, whatever that is. Where are the people? Empty. 
You may wonder, like, well, what's the effect of that? How is this impacting everything? What about the rate of abortion? What about the state of the family? What about the size of families? The well-being of children? The flourishing of a society? There's a direct connection. And what if I were to tell you that things like a rising abortion rate, that that is itself a judgment? That is itself a judgment where people say, I will not worship God, and the Lord says, okay, go and pursue your sinful desires and see where they go. Will they go to the destruction of the self, even to the destruction of the most vulnerable and the smallest? There is a great effect to not worshiping God. It tears down ourselves and other people. What does Paul say that we're given over to? Well, impure desires of the heart, which then results in the dishonoring of our bodies. Do you notice there's progress there mentioned? It begins in the seed of the heart, but then it just goes outward doesn't it in the seat of the emotions and the affections down deep in the person this is where it begins and he gives you over to what your heart wants all these impure desires and then where does it end up affecting your bodies your relationships the things you say the things you do that word there translated in english as dishonoring could also be translated to the shaming of our bodies, to the use of our bodies, to ends that they were never intended to be used. We'll touch upon that next week whenever Paul continues to open this up and shows a little bit more of what he means when he touches upon same-sex sexual sin uh, in the next section. But there is an effect to not worshiping God. Don't think you can just unplug and it not affect the mind and the heart or that it might not offend the God of heaven. It absolutely does. As we progress on in verse 25, the Apostle Paul continues in his train of thought, and he says that they exchanged, or because of these things, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Put it into another phrase. They mishandled the truth. And so a second thing I want to commit to you this morning is that how we handle the truth has consequences. Doesn't it? How we handle the truth has consequences. Now something that needs to be said and just made absolutely clear is that truth does not care as if it has a mind or a heart. Truth does not care how we deal with it. It's objective. Truth doesn't care about our feelings. It doesn't care about our opinions. It just remains true, right? If you don't relate to that, I can put it into uh, some illustration. When the car is broke down on the side of the road, no matter how angry you are at that car, no matter how offended you are about it, that car still broke down, right? There's an objective truth to it. 
You could say any sort of ungodly thing to a vehicle that won't move, and it ain't going to move just because you want it to. Bank account. We can think everything is fine. We can convince ourselves that we've got enough money that we can pay our bills. But if the reality of things is, if the truth of things is, that there's a deficit, then the bills won't get paid. I've got enough money. I've got enough money. I've got everything I need. But if you don't, then you simply don't. And the people to whom you owe the debt will come knocking at your door, whether you want them there or not. The bills will continue to come in. If you're on a run, no matter how much you want, a clear, beautiful, sunny day, if the Lord ordains for it to rain and be cold and snow and sleet or whatever Germany's going to do, you're going to get what you get. And that's the truth of it. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Truth is not relative, nor is it concerned about us. We would like it to be concerned about us, though. But what do people do with truth they don't like? They ignore it. They plead ignorance. They act like they've forgotten it. Right? I don't know if any of you Americans are guilty of this at all. In this home that is not your native land. You ever run into a German rule that you know about and you just think, maybe I can get away with it? And when I get caught, and let me just simply say, Germans catch me every single time I think I'll do this. I'll say, don't you remember, we don't make noise at that time of day. And here you are with a drill making lots of noise. I'm just a dumb American. How could I know? But I knew. Maybe it's a mask mandate or ten other different things. You just fill in the blank. People like to act like they've forgotten the truth. Or we can do what the Apostle Paul says. We can exchange the truth for a lie. I'll make my own reality. I'll make what I I think is true. It doesn't matter what other people think is true. I'll decide what's true. I'm the one that matters here. And you see, this is an issue because it has to do with our hearts. Because here's the reality. Why do people do this? Well, it's because of this. Because truth may or may not affirm or confirm things that you would like to be true. Truth will say, you're not okay when you're not okay. Truth will say, you need to change when you need to change. Truth will say, you owe worship to God even when you don't want to worship God. And it doesn't change in the reality of its effects. Don't change. And so this morning we need to hear that the way in which we deal with truth matters. And let me share a quote with you from one of my professors in seminary, Ligon Duncan. He said this, If we don't conform our desires to the truth, we will inevitably conform the truth to our desires. If we don't conform our desires to the truth, we will inevitably conform the truth to our desires. I promise you, you have never yourself, nor have you ever met any 
Christian who believes a wrong thing about God, a thing that's not reflected in the scriptures, who will not have a rational reason why. Every point of heresy, every spiritual departure, you and I in the heart of every single man, woman, or child, we will rationalize it. We will offer to ourselves a false truth or to the world an argument for why we might do this or that and that it's actually good even though it's contrary to the scriptures. Christians... We must be conformed to the truth of God. To the scriptures without apology. And when they say things that offend us, let the offense land. When they say that we're not okay, simply say to yourself, I'm not okay and I need to change. Because the result on the other side of it is horrific. And if we live lives conformed to the truth of God, that result is glorious and wonderful and sweet in a life of communion with God. Be mindful how you handle the truth. Don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then thirdly, as we continue on in verse 25, the eternal blessedness of God. So we read in verse 25 already that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and that the result of that was they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is Paul's expression of paganism or idolatry. And you see, this is intimately connected. This is all in the flow of his argument and his thought. And let me say it this way. Idolatry is convenient, right? If you want to play fast and loose and sort of get around the truth... Idolatry is very convenient for it because idolatry says you get to make up your own religion. What you want. You get to make your religion look like you want, sound like you want, act like you want, be like you want. It's, it's your design after all. Who makes idols? People do. Who decides whether that idol looks like a great big monster from a video game? People do, Does the idol look like a perfectly sculpted Greek goddess or god? People do, but it's an interesting thing. Very oftentimes, idols look like who? Well, the people that actually make them. Idolatry is convenient, and Paul is saying this. Yes, of course, this is the result. People exchanged the truth for a lie. They fashioned a religion for themselves. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator. You see, you may think to yourself, I'm not an idolater. You think and you maybe go around the house that you live in and you think, have I got any idols set up, any little shrines set up in my house? I don't think I do. But there was that one thing I bought on vacation that time. It's kind of cool looking. I don't have any kind of religious attachment to it. But, you know, I'm not an idolater. Well, friends, I think we disguise our own idolatry in a variety of ways, and we have to be aware of our own souls. What are things that we give service to at the expense of God? The first of them, I have to say, is self. The things that I want, the sleep that I want, the exercise I want, the building of my body I want, the pursuit of an intellect that I want... 
Uh, it's not wrong to take care of your body. It's not wrong to exercise. Lord knows I could always do more of it. The Lord made you to honor him, to glorify him in the keeping of your body, but an imbalanced portion of this where you become the center of your own world, a devotion given over to yourself, it's an idolatry. Money, the pursuit of money, the handling of money, the way in which we build up the house around us, the way in which we fill our house with goods, the way in which we do or don't give to other people, how preciously we hang on to those dollars and cents, those oro and oro cents, however it is. Oh, it matters entirely. Is it an idol? How do we handle it? Money, certainly an idol. Family? Hang on a second, Pastor. Family? Yeah, family can be an idol. How much time, how much devotion do you give to everything that builds up the family? Is it at the expense of the worship of God? At the expense of a life lived before the face of God? Yeah, you can actually take something that the Lord intends for your blessing and turn it into an idol that is ultimately an evidence of a sinful heart. Some years ago, I was with a friend in Oklahoma, an old family friend. He's a great big giant of a man, really deep voice, the kind of guy you'd love to hear as a radio announcer or something like this, maybe a a sports announcer for, I don't know, soccer, baseball, football, however. And and he's an atheist, and one of the things I know about him is that when I'm with him, he's going to take the Lord's name in vain like five or six times every hour. And one time he and I were together and I asked him, I said, you know, why are you doing that? You you know that I'm a Christian. Moreover, you know that I'm a pastor. Why are you doing that? And his response to me was, oh, I just love to watch Christians squirm whenever I use the Lord's name in vain. I know it gets under your skin. I just kind of enjoy it. It's funny to me. And we had a long conversation that evening. He's uh, an avowed new atheist in the line of Uh, Dawkins and Hawking and others of their ilk. And he said, oh, you're a pastor. Let's talk about religious things. And he was going to try to convince me of atheism. And over hours, hours, one night of debate, discussion, and argument, I felt all of the culmination of years of seminary study just come into full view. And I had him cornered. He could not not say that there is a God. He couldn't do it. And I noticed as our conversation progressed longer and longer, more and more, he just got louder and louder. He cursed at me more and more and more. And then right at the end of it, when he could say nothing else, with tears in his eyes, he cursed me, shouted at me and said, I know that there is a God and I hate him and I won't worship him. In his mind, knowing that there is a God and hating him and not worshiping him is a way that he can strike at a God he can't reach. Take something from him. Have some sort of act of violence to an eternal and spiritual God. And here at the close of verse 25, Paul confronts that in a tiny phrase. He talks about this idolatry, the worship of creature rather than creator. And then how he closes the verse, verse 25, is this. Rather than the creator who is blessed 
forever. That doesn't make a lot of sense. They worship the creature rather than the creator. But that creator, Paul is saying, is himself blessed forever. It's not a verb, it's an adjective. He's talking about the character of God in himself. He is blessed. And Paul is saying, all the while the creatures want to worship creatures, God is not robbed of any glory derived from them. He is pleased to glorify himself through them, but God doesn't sit in need of any of them or anything that he can get only from them. Think about God for a second with me. This means God is as satisfied in himself forever and ever and ever, even if he never created a single one of us. God can't be injured by the depth of our sin or our refusal to worship him. Our sin offends him. Our sin is contrary to him and his eternal being. But even though man may rage at his God, our God is in himself forever blessed without an ounce of need of any of his creatures. It's a wonderful truth. It's also a truth that means we have a God who can care for these sort of people. And as we continue to study in Romans, whenever we finally get all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, all of the doctrine, the hard news, the bad news, we're going to see more of this self-sufficient and eternally blessed God. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word, oh Lord, that you've given us in the scriptures. 66 books, Lord, where you display yourself to us that we might know you and praise you and obey you. Our Father, we pray that you would build up your church, that Lord, you'd help us to be a people that would honor you. Lord, help us to be a people that would live after Christ. And Father, we pray that you would be in the midst of all of us as we come to the table in just a moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.